Hey, everybody, Elizabeth here. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to make sure that you know registration is currently open for our Spring Strong Foundations cohort. Strong Foundations is a five-week strength building program brought to you by me and Morgan Bungers. Coach Morgan Bungers is one of the best, most effective strength training coaches in this country. He has worked with some of the most elite athletes in the world, and now he specializes working with people in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s who want everyday strength. And this is not about being able to push your suitcase into the overhead compartment on an airplane. We need to be consistently and effectively strength training if we want to maintain the strength of our immune system. Muscle is a critical part of our immune system. And if we are not actively maintaining our strength, we are losing it as we age. And that means we are losing the strength of our immune system. It's also a significant component of our overall metabolism, especially our carbohydrate metabolism. Muscle mass plays a huge role in energy, in mood, mental health, bone health, so many different things. This is just not optional, but a lot of us don't do it because we aren't sure what to do. We aren't sure what not to do. We aren't sure if we're moving well. We don't know how to accommodate for our physical limitations or our current level of fitness, and that is why you need a coach and you'd be hard-pressed to find one better than Morgan Bungers. Now, here's the thing about fitness programs. I've experienced this. My mom, who's in her 70s, has experienced this, where you buy a fitness program and then you're like, okay, but I I can't do that workout because I'm not fit enough or I don't have enough balance or I don't have that equipment or that hurts my knees or it hurts my back. And then you're sort of just left to figure it out yourself, which means we often don't do anything. The great thing about Strong Foundations is that Morgan and I are part of it every single day and you have an unlimited ability to ask us questions in a group setting or via direct message so that Morgan can help you scale for you, for whatever equipment you have, for the time that you have, for your fitness level, for your body and your physical limitations. Five weeks, there's two different tiers. There's a beginner intermediate tier. There's an intermediate advanced tier. The testimonials that we have received from our previous clients will blow your mind. You can check them out and also register for your spot by going to primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation. Primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation. If you are an alum, if you have been through strong foundations before, I've already emailed you a renewal link with a special renewal rate. So please use that. If you don't see that email, let me know. For the rest of you, primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation. We start on May 13th. So grab your spot now. You will have these workouts for life. Four workouts a week for five weeks, two different tiers. So you've got 40 workouts total. Plus, there is a five-part series on your pelvic floor. That is an incredibly important part of your physical fitness, of your strength, of your core strength, of your overall health, of your ability to maintain functional mobility as you get older. We want you to be a part of this. You will not regret joining the Strong Foundations cohort. It is an incredible community. 
everybody needs to be consistently and effectively strength training. And if you're not, it's probably because you don't know how to make it work for you. And it can be made to work for you. It needs to be made to work for you. Primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation to register now. Let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Primal Potential Podcast, the incremental anti-diet solution for effective permanent weight loss. Primal Potential is committed to helping you overcome emotional eating, hormonal imbalances, unhealthy habits, and your dieting mindset through education and inspiration. We don't just talk about what you should eat and what you should avoid. We talk strategy. Primal Potential is bridging the gap between knowing and doing. Each episode will leave you with concrete tips for making positive changes that make a difference. Primal Potential is here to help you lose weight, get healthy, and master fat loss naturally. Hey friend, welcome back to the Primal Potential Podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Benton, and I'm so glad that you picked today to tune in because I have been waiting for a long time to talk about today's topic, and we are going to dive right in because I have a lot to say about high fructose corn syrup. In the episode from last week, I talked about soda, Coke and Pepsi, some of you call it pop, Um, and I wanted to do a separate episode on sugar and the common sugar in soda, which is high fructose corn syrup, and get into how it is different from other forms of sugar and why I personally believe, based on the research I've familiarized myself with, that it is largely responsible for the obesity epidemic, diabetes, and a few other things that might surprise you. And I really think you will too at the end of the episode. I really think that by the end of this episode, you will understand that if you eliminate high fructose corn syrup from your diet and moderate your consumption of fructose from all sources, that you will drop weight, that you will increase your burning of body fat, that you will improve your heart health, lower your blood pressure, reduce your cholesterol, and probably a whole lot more. And I really hope, more than probably other episodes I've done in the past, I really hope you'll share this episode with someone in your life that you love and want to keep around, you know, on earth for a while. So let's start with some of the basics, okay? And let's first get all on the same page that all sugar is not the same thing. There are different kinds of sugar and they are metabolized differently. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about glucose and fructose and sucrose specifically, but there's also things like lactose, which is milk sugar, and all of them are metabolized differently. So to back up just a second, let's refresh everybody here and establish that all carbohydrates are chains of sugar. And there are long chains and short chains and linear chains and branch chains, all made up of different building blocks of different types of sugar, but all carbohydrates, whether we're talking about an apple or a zucchini or a potato, pretzel, cookie, bowl of sugar, plate of pasta, all of it, chains of sugar and 
During metabolism, these chains of sugar break down to their smallest parts, which are simple sugars called monosaccharides. And there are a couple different kinds that we're going to be talking about today to set the stage for our conversation about high fructose corn syrup. So when we're talking about monosaccharides or these simplest building blocks of sugars, the most common one we talk about is glucose. Glucose is the only sugar that is required by the body. Now, your body can create glucose from other things like protein, so it can be a little misleading. People will be like, oh, well, my body needs sugar, so I better eat up. It's not really true. We don't need to consume sugar to meet our needs, and I'll get back to that in a few minutes, but when we talk about blood sugar or stimulating an insulin response that takes us out of fat burning mode, we are usually talking about glucose. Glucose, when we eat it, is either used immediately for energy because it can be used by every single cell in the body, right? Or it is stored in the muscles or the liver as glycogen or it spills over and is converted to and stored as body fat. So we've talked a lot about glucose. Now, fructose is a sugar found naturally in fruits and vegetables, but more and more it is added to just about everything else we eat, right? Soda, fruit drinks, almost every processed food out there. But it is very, very different. Fructose is very different from other sugars because its metabolic pathway, how it is broken down and used by the body, is very different. Fructose is not, is not the preferred muscle source for your muscles and brain. In fact, hear me, fructose cannot be used by anything in your muscles or your brain Fructose can only be metabolized by your liver. That is it. Fructose can only be metabolized in the liver, whereas glucose can be used as fuel for every single cell in your body. So this and some other things that we're going to talk about makes fructose the most lipogenic or fat-producing carbohydrate, okay? Now, a lot of people get confused about fructose on this next point, and that is while glucose stimulates an insulin response, fructose does not. Fructose does not. So people think like, oh, well, if I have more fructose, then I'll burn more fat because I won't be creating that insulin response. That's actually not true. And I'm going to explain why, because fructose is so readily converted to fat, much more readily than glucose. But the other thing is, because fructose does not stimulate an insulin response, that means it does not stimulate a leptin response because insulin and leptin rise hand in hand. And leptin, you'll remember, is our satiety hormone. So fructose bypasses your satiety signals, which sets people up for overeating. So if we know, which we do now, that fructose is in just about all processed foods and it does not trigger satiety, now we can kind of understand why we can never put the bag of chips down or the box of cookies down or the animal crackers or whatever it is because they do not trigger our satiety mechanism. Fructose behaves a lot more like a fat than a carbohydrate, and there are some very unique attributes to its metabolism that we're going to get into in a minute. So some of this is going to be pretty science heavy, but I'm going to break it down, and I really hope that if something is unclear, that you will first check out the show notes over on primalpotential.com or shoot me an email and let me know, and I'd be happy to clarify 
All right, so we talked about glucose and we talked about fructose. Those are two monosaccharides or single units of sugar, right? Sucrose is what we know as table sugar, right? The white sugar in the bowl. And it's typically from sugar cane or sugar beets. Fruits and vegetables naturally contain some sucrose, but sucrose is a combination of glucose and fructose, okay? So both of those sugars are going to be generated in the metabolism of table sugar or anything that contains table sugar. So when the body metabolizes it, it goes through the glucose metabolic pathway and the fructose metabolic pathway, and that can lead to some problems, which we're going to get into. All right. So then what is high fructose corn syrup? It is a chemical creation. And obviously, now we're, we know we're talking about corn syrup, right? So it is corn syrup that is high in fructose. Now, here's what's interesting. Initially, corn syrup didn't contain fructose. It was just sugar derived from corn, right? It was just corn syrup. Then it became high fructose corn syrup. So back in the 1950s, these two particular researchers developed an enzyme, and you don't need to know this, but if you're curious because you're a geek like me, hey, um, but they developed an enzyme called glucose isomerase. Okay, and basically what this does is converts the glucose naturally found in corn syrup to fructose. Okay, so whenever they had glucose naturally occurring in this corn syrup or added to it, either way, this enzyme would convert it to fructose. And fructose is way, way, way sweeter than glucose. So this was a good thing from a food manufacturing standpoint. Like, whoa, we can have this enzyme and we can convert glucose, which isn't so sweet, to fructose, which is way sweeter. That's genius, right? Absolutely genius. And because there were all these new federal subsidies for corn, making it really inexpensive, they could use high fructose corn syrup instead of regular corn syrup, and they could use way less and have it be more sweet, okay? So it basically took over as the sweetener. In, um, let's see, in the 1970s, it was only about half of the sweetener that was out there on the market. And by the 90s, it was about 90%. So it really, really took over. It totally took over. And now, this day and age, in you know, 2015, wherever we're at, high fructose corn syrup is in about every single processed food you pick up, including loaves of bread. I mean, you name it. High fructose corn syrup is just in everything from mustard to ketchup to granola bars, lots of protein bars, protein shakes. I mean, you name it. High fructose corn syrup is in everything. And it is, this blows my mind. And when we talk about the metabolism, you'll understand why this is so scary and so dangerous. But the number one source of calories in America, the number one source that Americans get the majority of their calories from, high fructose corn syrup. Why? Because 90 cents of every food dollar spent in this country is spent on processed foods. So of course, if we're eating processed foods and high fructose corn syrup is one of the first ingredients in those processed foods, yeah, 
That's why it's the number one source of calories. And, you know, initially that really breaks my heart, but I also see it as a heck of a challenge. I mean, even if when we go to the grocery store from now on, we just commit to putting one less processed food item in our cart, that's progress because this is a statistic that we need to change. And we all have personal responsibility here. And I pray that by the end of this episode, you'll really understand why. If we look at our historical consumption of fructose in general, just not even accounting for high fructose corn syrup, right? It correlates, the increase in our consumption of fructose correlates directly with the rise of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, and we're going to talk about just why that is. So if we look at sort of a paleo-ish diet before the advent of processed foods, naturally humans were getting about 15 grams of fructose per day, and that was coming from uh, fruits and vegetables, obviously, of course. Then right before World War II, it was about 16 to 24 grams a day. So it was on the rise, but not so much. Then in 1977, we had gone from about 15 grams a day to 16 to 24 grams. By 1977, we were at 37 grams per day about double where kind of our bodies were evolved to operate from. And then in 1994, we took a massive leap up to about 55 grams per day. And guys, remember, this is just fructose, okay? Now, in 2015, the average teenager is getting 73 grams per day of fructose, okay? That is just one type of sugar. Total sugar, approximately double that number, and that is what they are getting. Not So we're not just eating more, right? The obesity epidemic is not just about eating more. It's about what we're eating. And when you understand the metabolism, which we're just a couple minutes away from talking about, you'll see why this is the culprit. So the current consumption in the United States of high fructose corn syrup alone, so we're not talking about fruit here or vegetables. Vegetables have very little. 63 pounds per person per year. 63 pounds. That's just of high fructose corn syrup. Of sugar in general in this country right now, according to the Journal of Clinical Investigation, 141 pounds of sugar per person per year. The change in the per person consumption of high fructose corn syrup over the last 25 years, it's not a 100% increase. It's not a 1,000% increase. It is an 11,000% increase, according to the USDA's Economic Research Service report in 2006, and it has continued to rise since then. And the reason for this is processed foods, processed foods. So think about this, okay? If we are getting just of one type of sugar, lowball 70 grams per day. Remember in the soda episode, I talked about the fact that your body is always working to stabilize your blood sugar. And a healthy, normal blood sugar range is the equivalent of one teaspoon of sugar, which is just a handful of grams, like four or five grams off the top of my head, at a time. The rest of it has to be burned or stored. So if that is all your body can handle at one time and we are dumping in 73 grams per day of just this one type of sugar, if we are dumping in 141 pounds of sugar per person per year, not only are we overweight, 
but we're killing ourselves. And that is not an overstatement. And that is not me being dramatic. And I certainly have a flair for that. But that is not what this is. We are dying. No wonder autoimmune diseases are through the roof and cancer is through the roof and hypertension is through the roof. And there are now more obese people in this country than there are overweight people. I mean, we are killing ourselves. Our, it's not even a matter of cosmetics, right? And we all want to like look good, feel good, feel sexy. Dude, your body can only handle at one time in your bloodstream one teaspoon of sugar. And we are dumping in pounds of sugar, not even knowing it half the time, not even realizing that it is in the ketchup, that it is in the granola bar, that it is in the white bread or the whole wheat bread or the whole grain bread or your potato chips. It is absolutely everywhere. This is what is making us fat and sick, and it's what's contributing to heart disease and diabetes and cancer. And I love this uh, kind of conclusion that was drawn when we look at the world's food supply. It does explain diabetes, right? Because if you combine the information from several databases, including the Food and Agricultural uh, Organization, which measures food availability, right? And then you combine that with the International Diabetes Federation, which, of course, measures diabetes prevalence. And then if you also combine that with the um, World Development Economic Indicators and the World Health Organization, so you're now looking at total calories, you're looking at diabetes, you're looking at intake of meat, of fat, of cereals, which is primarily glucose, of your nuts, vegetables, roots, tubers, which is fiber, your fruits, natural sugar, and other sugars, as well as your processed foods. And then when you do what really needs to be done and most studies don't do, you control for poverty and aging and obesity and physical activity. What do you see? It is sugar consumption that explains diabetes prevalence worldwide. There is no other relevant factor when you control for poverty and aging and obesity and physical activity. It isn't about the weight. It is about the sugar. I mean, that's major. It isn't about physical inactivity. It isn't about obesity. It is about sugar you are pumping into your body. And when we look at, I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but hey, it's my show. I can do it. Um, when we look at studies that pinpoint dietary fat, as kind of the predictor of heart disease, they don't control for sugar. As fat consumption rises, sugar consumption rises. If you look at countries that have a very high fat but low sugar diet like Eskimos, and they're out there, um, I haven't met one, but they're there. There's almost no heart disease or inflammatory disease. And this is poor science, which is why I love that these researchers have combined these different databases and then controlled for so many different variables to see that the only indicator of obesity and heart disease and diabetes is sugar. Sugar. Now, here's where I think it gets really cool. And if you're a sugar geek, uh, sugar geek, that's totally not what I mean. If you're a sugar geek, we need to talk. If you're a science geek, I think you'll really enjoy this understanding of how it is different to metabolize fructose than it is to metabolize glucose, okay? Now, remember that glucose is what we talk about when we're talking about insulin and managing blood sugar. That is glucose, and fructose is a different kind of sugar. So we're going to look at both. So let's look at 
What happens when we metabolize 120 calories from glucose, which would be about two slices of bread? Now, I first want to say that the example that I'm giving here is based on normal, healthy human metabolism. It's not based on the fact that most people are going to have two, sli- two slices of white bread plus a huge handful of chips, plus maybe some pretzels, plus, you know, a soda. So we're looking at this kind of in isolation, okay? As if you were not eating anything else at the time, as if you're not somebody who has like fried your hormones, just in general from a metabolic standpoint. So I hope everybody's on the same page with me there. 120 calories of glucose, two slices of white bread. So because every single cell in the human body can use glucose, most of these calories are going to be used by the body, by your muscles, by your brain. You are fueling your body. Now again, if you are overfeeding yourself, obviously your body is not going to have a need for it, right? But 80% of the total calories can potentially be used when you have a fuel need from the body because every single cell in your body can use glucose. And glucose is going to stimulate the pancreas to release insulin so that insulin can usher the glucose into wherever it needs to provide fuel to meet your body's needs. Again, if you're a chronic carbohydrate eater or your body doesn't need fuel, then this is going to spill over. Your cells are not going to use up fuel if they don't need it, they'll store it. But the way your body is supposed to work when you aren't overfeeding it, right, you have the potential to use the majority of this glucose to fuel your body. And then about 20% of the calories are going to make it to the liver. And in the liver, they can be converted to glycogen. Glycogen is a non-toxic storage form, so it doesn't impair your liver function in a normal healthy quantity or it doesn't contribute to non-alcoholic fatty liver the way that fructose consumption can. So you only have about 20% of the sugars hitting your liver when you're not in an overfed state because glucose is a great fuel source for the body. Now, once 20% of that glucose hits your liver, it can only be released under the right hormonal conditions. So when glucagon is elevated, which is basically when you're in a fasting state, um, and that doesn't have to be like days of fasting, but basically when your body needs fuel, insulin is low, glucagon is high, it allows your liver to release that stored glycogen, or it can also be released in response to another hormone, epinephrine. This is your sort of fight or flight response in a time of emergency or during like a high intensity workout. Now, the extra stuff, when you get to the point of spillover, what happens in the liver, and this can happen if your storage space is all full or because you've overeaten, overconsumed, right? There's something in the liver that is called de novo lipogenesis, okay? De novo means to create new and, well, actually, genesis is, but de novo refers to the new lipogenesis, creating new fat, Okay, well, what kind of fat results from this process in the liver when there's excess? Most often, it is VLDL, or very low-density lipoprotein, okay? This is what most people associate with bad cholesterol. Low-density, something that's very, very dense is like compact, right? Something that is... um, 
that's high, something that's high density is very compact. Something that's low density is fluffy and more likely to clog up your arteries, right? So let's talk for just a second about this cholesterol stuff, which needs to be an episode in and of its own, and I'll put that on the list. But people often think of HDL as your good cholesterol. HDL stands for high density, right? When we think of something like high density, imagine a marble that is a very high density object. And imagine that marble rolling through a pipe. It's not likely to get stuck or have a pile up. It's just going to roll right through because it's so compact. Low density, LDL, what most people uh, kind of think of as the bad cholesterol, LDL is low density. Think of a grape, right? It's slightly less dense than that marble. It's kind of mushy, has a little more give to it, right? That's going to probably roll right through, but not as easily as the marble. Now, then there's VLDL. What I said is the fat creation from this process in the liver when there's still when there's spillover. VLDL is very low density. Think of, I mean, off the top of my head, I'm thinking cotton ball, right? Very fluffy, not dense at all. And this is the stuff that is most likely to contribute to heart disease because it doesn't roll right through as it travels through our circulatory system, right? It gets caught up. It causes traffic jams, okay? And this is what happens. How do we get this? When we consume sugar, sugar, this lipogenesis in the liver. Now, the good thing about glucose as opposed to fructose, and we're going to talk about fructose in a minute, glucose stimulates insulin, Fructose doesn't. The good thing about that, I know some of you are thinking, I'm confused. I thought stimulating insulin was bad. But like I said, when we stimulate insulin, we also release leptin, the satiety hormone, so we're less likely to overeat. The things we tend to overeat are the things that are very rich in fructose, high fructose corn syrup, because they don't trigger our satiety mechanism. So we don't need to panic as much about glucose, though we absolutely need to not overconsume it, but it really is fructose that's the problem because there isn't this negative feedback loop between the brain and insulin insulin that shuts off our appetite. Now let's take a look at sucrose. Remember that we said sucrose is a 50-50 split of glucose and fructose. Okay, so let's use a glass of orange juice as an example. The same 120 calories that we just looked at with two slices of white bread, totally different response, okay? So since it is a 50-50 split of glucose and fructose, 60 of the calories, half, because it's a 50-50 split, are going to be processed in the way that we just talked about. Most of it can be used by the body, right? Most of it is that glucose, or half of it is that glucose that can be used up by every cell in our body, right? Okay, so if half of the calories in this glass of orange juice are going to be processed like glucose, that means most of it can be used by the body and some of it's going to go to the liver. But the half of it that is fructose, all of that is going to the liver because only the liver can metabolize fructose. So you now have 72 calories being metabolized by the liver, whereas in the example of the white bread, you only had about 20 of those calories. So now we have 72 calories in the case of the 120 calorie glass of orange juice being metabolized by the liver. 
Okay, so one of the things that happens when the liver is metabolizing fructose uniquely is that it produces uric acid. Uric acid, many of you will be familiar with because it contributes to the development of gout. But the other thing that uric acid does, and remember, uric acid is a byproduct of fructose metabolism in the liver, which is where fructose metabolism has to happen. It's the only place that fructose can be metabolized. Uric acid blocks nitric oxide synthase. Nitric oxide is a vasodilator. It dilates your blood vessels and allows your blood to flow freely. So when you block this thing that stimulates and creates nitric oxide, what does that lead to? Hypertension. Hypertension and inflammation, and heart disease. So those things are not coming from dietary fat. They are coming from sugar, uniquely from fructose. We raise our blood sugar when we tax the liver by having it metabolize fructose, whether pure fructose or high fructose corn syrup. It creates uric acid as a natural byproduct of metabolism, which blocks nitric oxide synthase. So we cannot have the dilation that we need to keep our blood flowing freely. So that is one thing that is unique to fructose metabolism that has to happen in the liver, okay? But then again, because we have these 72 calories versus, say, 20-ish from just pure glucose being metabolized by the liver, we are creating more and more of this lipogenesis that we mentioned that happens in the liver, and much of that is going to be VLDL or the very bad cholesterol that contributes to heart disease, okay? So a high sugar diet, guys, is a high fat diet because it spills over, especially when it is fructose, because it has to be metabolized by the liver, okay? There's an interesting study. It's a human study, which is always my preference because, you know, we're not rats and everything like that. It was only six days, six days. So humans, six days, the humans were fed a high fructose diet, which we are all on if we eat a lot of processed foods, in just six days. Triglycerides doubled. De novo lipogenesis, or this new fat creation, increased fivefold in just six days in humans. So this overconsumption of fructose leads to something that I think is really adequately described as malnutrition of affluence right? We can make better choices, but we don't. Are we overfed? Yeah, we're way overfed, but we are severely undernourished. Think about it. If we are eating such a high volume of processed foods, are we really nourishing our bodies with the things they need? No way. And we're taxing the hell out of our liver, right? It's not just the overfed part that is the problem. Overeating alone is not what is making us fat. Listen to those statistics, right, about overconsumption of of fructose and sugar and how much our sugar consumption has risen. That is the real problem. That is the real problem. And we have to remember that fructose, which is in just about every single processed food out there, bypasses your satiety mechanisms. Okay? 
Plus, high fructose corn syrup uniquely interferes with the enzyme that is required to deliver copper throughout your body, which, you know, if you don't know anything about copper, you're like, oh, well, that's too bad. But copper is required for heart health, detoxification, and health of your pancreas. So that's kind of a huge deal because I'm pretty sure we all need to detox and we all need a heart and pretty sure we all need a pancreas, but I'm not a doctor. The other thing that I've mentioned in past podcasts is that fructose is 20 to 30 times more glycating than glucose. What does that mean? It is more likely to bind to proteins and render them ineffective. Well, who cares? Well, because it ages you. When that happens um, to a fruit, when we start to see fruit browning, that is glycation. When we put meat on a grill and it browns, that is glycation. And that happens in our body and causes skin wrinkling, uh, fine lines, wrinkles, sagging skin, that sort of thing. But inside the body, it impairs circulation. It leads to peripheral neuropathy, and it causes your cells to die, which, again, I'm no doctor, but I kind of think that's a wee bit of a problem. So anyway, what about fruit? Because obviously the sugar naturally occurring in fruit is largely fructose. So, you know, should I avoid fruit? And the answer is yes and no. And I lean towards no, because the fiber and the water found in fruit is going to help trigger satiety. So it's going to be less likely that you get into caloric excess. And let's be real for a second. I mean, I've been over 300 pounds. I didn't get that way because I ate too many apples, right? I didn't get that way because I ate too much watermelon. So there are other things in sugars that are certainly beneficial to health. It really is the issue of the processed foods. Now, with that said, If fat loss is your goal, then you need to be moderate with your fruit. Like, I'm sorry, if you're trying to burn fat, you don't need to be having seven clementines in a day or an entire watermelon. I encourage all of my clients to treat fruit like a carbohydrate because it is. Why should we treat it as anything else? When people get this notion that like, well, it's a whole food, so I mean, you can't overeat it. Dude, you can overeat anything. You can overeat absolutely anything. So the notion that like it doesn't count because it's fruit or it doesn't count because it's vegetables, I could strangle Weight Watchers for calling fruits and vegetables free because people think they're not carbohydrates. They are. They are. Are they the reason you're overweight? No, but should you sit down with like, you know, a a mixing bowl full of cherries? No, definitely not. (laughs) Definitely not. So follow the golden rules of carbs and fat loss, which I talk about in previous episodes and I will link to in the show notes page. Treat it like a carbohydrate when fat loss is the goal. Be moderate about your intake. Take it easy, you know, take it easy. Now, I want to take a few minutes as we wrap up here and just give you a little insight into all of the things that contain high fructose corn syrup. And if I stress you out with this, I can make it really simple. Don't eat things in a bag, a box, or a can. And then you don't have to make this transition overnight, obviously, but focus on whole foods, on, you know, fresh meats and fish and chicken and fruits and vegetables. You don't need to eat things that come in a bottle or a box or a bag or a can. So what contains high fructose corn syrup? Really simply, just about anything processed. And 
Remember, when you see things like great source of fiber, low sugar, gluten-free, their job is to sell you. Their job is not to make foods that are going to keep you healthy. Their job is to sell you. So please stop falling for the really dishonest marketing on the packages. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Nobody has to put a box around an apple to be like, this is good for you. So when you see that on, you know, the cookies that are like, like high source of fiber and low sugar and only two grams of fat per serving. If they've got to try and sell you on the fact that it's healthy, question that automatically. But anyway, soapbox, sorry. Foods that contain high fructose corn syrup, soda, juice, cookies, soup, yogurt, salad dressing, bread, cereals, iced tea, granola bars, protein bars, sweetened dairy products, ketchup, bacon, peanut butter, mustard, beer, pretzels, barbecue sauces, pasta sauces, and... High fructose corn syrup has been added to a ton of other processed foods, but oftentimes they'll skirt the issue by just putting like flavorings or assorted seasonings and there's high fructose corn syrup in there, but they're not labeling it. And again, if that stresses you out, why? Don't let it. Like, just choose to minimize anything processed. It's okay. You don't have to be perfect, right? I mean... Just make good common sense choices. You don't have to panic. I'm like, it doesn't say high fructose corn syrup, but I'm not really sure. Okay, if it's not a whole food, you should eat it moderately anyway. The bulk of your food as you move along the spectrum should be whole foods, right? And you're primarily going to see it as high fructose corn syrup, um, but you could also see glucose fructose syrup, um, all sorts of different names for it. But again, I don't want you to get hung up on that stuff. I really would just rather see you really emphasize whole foods and slowly, gradually, over time, reduce your dependence on anything processed. The practical implementation here is super, super simple. Start to cut back on processed foods. No matter what that is for you, whether that's soda, whether it's fruit juice, whether it's, you know, Dan and yogurt, whether it's Pringles or Chips Ahoy, start to work towards maybe you just want to pick one item that you regularly indulge in and you want to slowly cut back on that one item before focusing on anything else. That's awesome. Right. Or maybe you decide I love cookies, but from now on, if I'm going to eat cookies, I'm going to bake them myself from whole foods that I know I'm not adding high fructose corn syrup. Right. Besides, if it doesn't trigger satiety, why set yourself up to eat something that's going to make you want to eat more? I mean, I don't know about you, but like that seems really not bright. For me, that seems really, really not bright. Maybe you decide you love a great sandwich, but instead of buying bread that has, among other things, high fructose corn syrup, you're just going to bake it yourself once a week, right? Or maybe you start with one meal at a time and you say, just for breakfast, I'm going to have whole foods. And then three or four weeks later, when you feel comfortable with that, move up to a second meal. Now, carbs and fat loss is a fascinating area. I love talking about it, but it's so misunderstood. And that is why I put together an entire e-course just about carbohydrate strategies for fat loss. It isn't about anything else, right? It talks about all the facets of carb metabolism, beans, fruit, wheat, gluten, how we can increase our carb tolerance. And in that course, I teach what I call the golden rules of carbs and fat loss how and when to eat what carbs for optimal fat loss. And we talk about how to tackle carb cravings and improve our insulin sensitivity so that we can enjoy more carbs and still burn fat. So 
Definitely check that out on Primal Potential under the Work With Me tab. It's the Carb Strategy e-course. And I will put it up on uh, primalpotential.com on, on the show notes for this episode. I hope that this was helpful to you. And I really hope you'll share it with somebody who maybe eats a lot of processed food so they can really understand the major metabolic differences of fructose compared to other sugars and how our staggeringly high intake of high fructose corn syrup comes from the fact that we eat so much of these processed foods and beverages, and it really is hurting our health and certainly not doing anything for our figure. So I hope this was helpful. If you have questions, shoot me an email. I'll see you in a couple of days with a Q&A episode. And until then, I really hope you stay in touch. Have a great day. Talk to you soon.